This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, producing. Welcome to the America Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. This is the 23rd year that we have been presenting these seminars, which come to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We are over 800 of the top theatre professionals have been part of this series of seminars. The playwrights, the producers, the directors, the actors, the the scene designers, set designers, costume designers, lighting designers, everyone that works in the theater that brings the magic of theater to the audience has been a part of this series of seminars. It is a virtual who's who of the history of theater. As many of you already know, the American Theater Wing is famous for its Tony Awards, which happens once a year and a very exciting and prestigious award it is too. But throughout the year, the American Theatre Wing talks theatre, and it talks theatre to the community. We bring shows to hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. We bring young people from the high schools of New York and Brooklyn and Queens into the Broadway sector to see their, for them, many times, their very, very first Broadway show. We started this program five years ago, and since that time, over 56,000 young people have come to New York to see a show. It is a wonderful experience for them. It enriches their lives, and we hope gives them role models as well, so they too will come into the theater. Uh, we have, in addition, a program called Theater in Schools, which is just that, and people like the ones that you will hear from today, as well as playwrights and producers and directors and actors have come into the, pro, into the schools to talk about what it is to work in the theater to these young people. It enriches their language, their lives, and we hope will create theater goers for the future. We're proud of the work that we do. We're happy to have the confidence and the cooperation of the theater industry so that we can do the things that we do. These seminars are but one, as you hear, of the many programs throughout the year that the wing provides as a service to the community. I'm now going to turn today's program over to our co-chairs. Today's program is on the production. It is Nikki Silver's Fit to be Tied, which is a fabulous new show, wonderful talent that has just opened. It will tell you and explore, I hope, what it is that makes a production 
full from where it starts, what the middle of it is, and how it ends, hopefully, happily for everybody, as Fit to be Tied has done. And our co-moderators today are Brendan Gill, who is critic in residence at the New Yorker magazine and member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and George White, who is president of the O'Neill Center in Waterford, Connecticut, an esteemed director both here and abroad. They will introduce this panel to you. Thank you very much for being here. <clears throat> On my father's right, returning by popular demand, uh, the greatest uh, stand-up, sit-down comic of our time, and the author of Fit to be Tied, Nicky Silver. Uh, his other plays include Free Will and Wanton Lust, uh, The Food Chain, Raised in Captivity, Pterodactyls, and several more plays with very interesting titles. Uh, Chris uh, uh, Bowl is seated next to Nicky. He's the production manager for Playwrights Horizons. Uh, he has been in that office for a couple of years now. He came up from the College of William and Mary, where he said after 15 years of, of uh, playing and teaching with the children, he wanted to join the adults in New York City. And here he is. And then on my immediate right is Leslie Marcus, the managing director at Playwrights Horizons. Uh, Leslie was the associate director of development at the Alvin Alley Ailey Dance Theater and the music program coordinator of the New York State Council on the Arts. George, speak up. Thank you. On my on downstage left is uh, uh, Janet Forster, who is the casting director for Fit to be Tied, and she has cast several other shows at Playwrights Horizons, including Arts and Leisure and the musical Floyd Collins, A Cheever Evening, and Police Boys. And she is also cast for television and film, and I just uh, learned that she's also cast for uh, Taking Sides. Uh, on her immediate right is Carol Clark, who is the production stage manager for Fit to be Tied, and her Broadway and national tour credits include Lynn Redgrave's Shakespeare for My Father and the Royal Shakespeare Company's A Midsummer Night's Dream. She has also worked extensively in regional theater. And next to her is Tim Sanford, who has been involved with Playwrights Horizons since 1984. As artistic director, he has been instrumental in the open-door submission policy and in making Playwrights Horizons a theater accessible to all writers. Tim is also co-president of the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of America. And on my immediate left, Lynn Landis is the general manager of Playwrights Horizons. Uh, she was the general manager for the Broadway production of Falsettos and company manager for the pre-Broadway tour and Broadway production of Man of La Mancha with Raul Julia and Sheena Easton. She also worked at Lincoln Center where she has served as company manager for five years. And I'd like to start uh, off by asking uh, Janet, a question, I, um, particularly because casting directors seem to be a fairly new, relatively new job in the theater. Um, and one, I'd like to, uh, if you would, outline for us a little bit of what you do, but also how you got started. What, what is the, how does a, a person become a, uh, a casting director? instead of having the director do it. Where did you, were you an actress, were you an agent, what were you? Oh yes, I was an actress. <laughs> um, I think you'd find a lot of casting directors have a background in acting, but not all of them. Um, I have an MFA in acting, and... Uh, from? From the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, 
I got started in casting as uh, a suggestion by a friend of mine who was an actress, Robin Bartlett, who's in L.A., um, said, I had been away from New York, I came back. I said, you know, I just don't think I want to start the whole acting thing again. Um, and she said, have you ever thought about casting? And two weeks later, I had a job. And I worked as an assistant um, in an uh, independent casting office for about nine months. And then I got the position at Playwrights Horizons as the casting assistant and then moved into an associate position and then became the casting director. So I was at Playwrights Horizons for about eight and a half years. Um, and now I'm an independent casting director. How, how was the first job? When you say, I got a job in two weeks, now how did you do it that? It was like combat duty. Um, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing and it was an independent office so it did film, television, theater, regional theater, New York theater, and it was like being shot out of a cannon because all of a sudden you were talking to agents and talking to managers and setting up appointments and in an office with five lines and you were there by yourself. So it was, uh, it was intense. <laughs> Going to uh, an institutional theater, um, things were still intense, but in a different way. It wasn't quite so manic. So you, you, at that time, didn't know anything about the job, so the, uh, the independent office must itself have been desperate to hire you. Well, I think it, it, in this particular case, um, it was an office in transition. It had, um, it had a... Uh, a TV series running in New York that got canceled. So all of a sudden it was 20 different jobs instead of one job that was, you know, steady week by week casting for the series. And, and all of a sudden it was mm -hmm. independent films and TV pilots and La Jolla and Goodman and all kinds of things happening. So you knew what you, you learned everything very fast. I learned it, yes. <laughs> it was learn it or, you know, you were <laughs> You're going to get a quiz on this. You shouldn't wake uh, up so quickly. <laughs> um, since you were the one that I think yesterday at our, our other seminar suggested there ought to be a Tony Award for stage managers. I didn't say a Tony Award because how would you give it? I mean, okay, what an award. But there should be some award. There should be some award of merit because a good stage manager is invaluable and rare and should have some reward. And therefore, Don't I would, would ask you to, to talk a little bit along with Carol about what she does. I, she, a well, Carol can tell you what a stage manager does. A stage manager seems to do everything. They seem to do everything. They, they, I mean, they, they watch everything that happens and write it down so that everyone remembers the next day. They tape the floor, they make the script as it gets cut every night. You know, you, you get new pages from the stage manager because we'll sit and rehearse and I'll say, ah, cut this word, you can get the next pages. I mean, I don't know what uh, her job is because it seems to be everything that needs doing seems to be the stage manager's responsibility. And they get the blame for everything. Um, <laughs> so there sh it seems to me that there should be some way to recognize a good stage manager. And Carol is a damn fine one, I tell you. There should be some way to recognize a good one. And there isn't. Like, everybody else gets awards. You know, everybody has awards. I, there must be a casting person's award. The CSA. The, yeah, right. <laughs> so, Have Carol, you is there any additions or corrections to that? That sounds pretty good. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what else is there? I know there's more than that. Yes. That's an well, awful lot, but there is more than that. Right. I mean, there is, you, in trying to be the liaison, because you're hired by the theater, and you work with the director and the actors, and then once the director leaves, in certain circumstances, you're, in, you know, you're trying to keep the show the way the director left it. And so that there is we think as stage managers that there's also a lot of there's creative part of it too that you're really trying to listen to what the director is saying and really watching what the moments are and yes you may have someone on book and you're thinking about blocking and all of that but we really you know you take a job usually unless it's for a lot of money you take it because it's something you're interested in I mean I 
had seen several of Nikki's shows. I loved Raised in Captivity. I thought this would be great to work with a director and an actor who are my age. And at Playwrights Horizons, it's a new play. It's an exciting playwright. So I think of it as something that is a creative thing. And I enjoy the challenges of, ooh, well, let's, what, what does this person need? What does that person need? Let's try and make it the easiest because I really respect and like what the creative elements do. And I like supporting that. I mean, I think they're terrific, and so... Who hired you in the first place? Um, I got a call from Chris Ball. Um, mm -hmm. He had called um, about a, a show early in Playwright season last year and that I was unavailable for. Um, and he had called, and I had talked, met David, um, David Warren before, and we had talked about a show. And so it was sort of like I sort of knew the people in, involved from two different ways. I had worked with Chris several years Are ago. Are you a member of the union? Um, Actors' Equity. Same Indeed, you really also function as equities, not the deputy, but sort of their representative, don't you, in many, many ways? Sure, you make sure that, you know, we have the breaks at the certain times and that, you know, it's the people are called and they have enough rest time and all of that stuff. So it's not only with liaising with the theater in terms of what's needed for the production, but you're also trying to make sure that, you know, everyone is If is we can get fairly. some sequence, who comes on first, you or you? Oh, definitely. Oh, Casting way before. So you started, and then you, you were the next. I, I well, I know. I think that probably there's so much more in, involved in the, the picking of the play. I don't, I'm sure the designers and the, all of that stuff came before, and then it was sort of. Then the stage managers then uh, advanced to being directors. Is that an ambition of yours, or are you happy where you are? No, I, I like doing. I right. like being a stage manager. I know that sort of sounds weird. I always, since ninth grade, I wanted to be a stage manager. Isn't huh? that sick? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be a waiter. <laughs> but it seems so much harder than being a director. A director has the opportunity to be something of a prima donna coming and going, but you're, you're, you're not allowed to be. You have to be there all the time. Yeah, once everyone leaves, then you get to like rant and rave. But mm -hmm. you no, know, I, I, it's fun to work with whether it's a new play or a musical or a Shakespeare that I've done a lot of that. That's, that's very exciting. And the best part is you get to stay during the entire run and really watch fabulous actors act. I mean, what could be better than that? That's mm -hmm. terrific. Telling a terrific story in a lot of ways. Yeah. That's great. Chris, how did you find her? And what do you do? I mean, this was a lead-in for that. And uh, well, I have a stack of resumes from stage managers this tall. We get them every day. Carol and I worked together years ago in, in Virginia at the Virginia Shakespeare Festival, and I knew her from there. And, um, uh, you know, you're always trying to pull together the friends that you've worked with before and, and they get, a, get a team together that you're comfortable with. So I, last season we had an opening for a, a stage manager, and I called Carol, and, and we hadn't talked in years, and it was good to get acquainted again. And then... Uh, um, Usually a director will have a stage manager they would work with, but David didn't in this case. Um, we tried a couple of people, and Carol was one of them, and uh, luckily it worked out. And what's your background for uh, getting the job that you've had? I know you're out of Virginia and, and, and all <coughs> that, but before that? Well, I've been a lighting designer and a technical director, and uh, often TDs will graduate to be production managers. Uh, when you get tired of being in the shop and banging nails, you, you move on to supervising. Uh, and I was at uh, Williamstown Theatre Festival for a number of years doing this job. And my work at, at uh, William & Mary as a, a teacher and a department chair was very similar to this. So um, I just gravitated to it, really. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's, that, that is, uh, so you say that being production manager grows out. I mean, this, this grows out, so logical. Well, Lynn, how about, how about you? How did I get here? Yeah, <laughs> how did you get here? And what do you do? Um, 
I work in tandem with Chris. We create the budgets for each of the productions at Playwrights. Uh, we talk to the, 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 I mean, in terms of the process, the play is picked. I, Tim can speak about that. Um, and the cast is picked. Once the cast is picked, I do all the contracting for that. We would talk to the director and author about who the creative team in terms of all the designers are. If schedules and availability and um, acceptability of all those elements work out, then I mean, that's a lot of work in terms of people's availability and schedules, particularly with designers, because um, fortunately, designers have to take a lot of jobs concurrently just to make a living. So scheduling is a really big issue. I'm sure it is with casting as well. Um, and yeah. that, 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 oddly enough, is one of the, the biggest hurdles you have in creating that team that you want on a show. And I think in the not-for-profit world because the money isn't there. It's really the love of the project that's there. So we coordinate the schedules and I follow through with all the contracting of that and um, I'm the no person on the show. Are you uh, also a lawyer? What do you do uh, about things? No, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> what do you do about contracts? You have, to, you have a lawyer come in? We, the <clears> only <throat> time we really consult with a lawyer is on the author contract. For the most part, we uh, were an off-Broadway theater. Mine is not finished yet, by the way. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. My fee has not been paid and my contract is not finished. But, you know, the world goes round. But who's counting, right? It's a, it's a it's nice tip. I'll tell you, see it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling that baby right out of the theater. <laughs> Nikki's right. I mean, it's that's a really long process. We started talking about Nikki's contract with his agent, um, I think late spring, actually. And it's, I mean, it's just this point, this point, this point. Um, and I think we've actually reached all the points and we will conclude before the end of the run, I'm happy to report. Um, but but we have in each case, then, uh, you're not really dealing with the principal, you're dealing with the, with the agents. Now, is this the, true of the agent of the director? Does the director have an agent you have to deal with? The, for the most part, all the actors have an agent, the director has an agent, the scenic, does, all the designers have an agent. However, our term, we're a small off-Broadway, not-for-profit theater. There is really no negotiation going on because we have collective bargaining agreements with um, SSDC, which is the director's... Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, right? Right. And um, Actors' Equity Association. So we have these collective bargaining agreements that is a favored nations agreement for the season that we're What producing. does that mean, favored nations? It means everyone works under equal um, terms. All the, all the designers have the same... Uh, financial agreement, billing Nobody gets agreement. more than another. another. Exactly. What agreement with the unions and guilds is that called? Under what, under what banner does that come? The agreement is what? It's not... Uh, well, all these different ones, right? You're saying that one, you're dealing with different unions for different things. Right. Playwrights belongs to the League of Off-Broadway Theaters and Producers. So the League of Off-Broadway Theaters and Producers uh, SSDC, the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the Musician Union, and uh, ATPAM, which is the managers and press agents. 
playwrights is smaller than a lot of the the league theater, so we really only have three uh, union or guilds that we deal with. And the author's agreement is an independent uh, agreement. Does Be it change from show to show, or, or is it whatever shows that are being done? At Actually, it does change. We have the same. a 141-seat theater, which is our main stage <laughs> theater, and we have a 72-seat theater upstairs. And because it, it's a whole different program with the 72-seat theater, we have greater concessions from all the unions because we offer, the ticket price is only $15, so the terms of the agreement are much different. All the unions acknowledge the working conditions and... How many seats are you? 141 and mm -hmm. the Angie Wilder Theater where Nikki's play is. What is the, the is it 199 still is the demarcation between one agreement and another, it used to be 199 yes, 299 Yes, I believe so, yes. But everybody comes into this thing knowing everything. There are no secrets, you know. There are no it, secrets. It sounds very healthy to have it all open and above board. I agree. And, and, and it, it's a consequence, however, of poverty and not riches. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't like the well thought put. behind that. <laughs> well put. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie, what do you do? Um, I and I, why? And <laughs> <laughs> Give Leslie's why title. What is your that title? Every day. Why? Uh, <laughs> Leslie, yes, we'll say your title. She's again. the managing director. Manager. Right. Um, my role is the support structure behind a lot of the various positions that we've been talking about. Playwrights Horizons, as we've mentioned, is a not-for-profit theater, so there is a, a business office, a marketing department, a development department to help raise the money in addition to ticket sales which cannot begin to fully support the cost of the work that's being produced. Um, so while I am not involved in, the, in any of the negotiations that Lynn is talking about, it's really all the people that work to help support the, the play and our whole season and the whole institution truly behind the scenes. You're, you're the head of the, of the bureaucracy, if it is a bureaucracy. <laughs> now, yes, how we did try you, to limit yeah. that bureaucracy. But but now, yes. you, you started with the working for the state, or what was your first job? I, I started out, it was an internship actually with the New York State Council on the Arts, um, coordinating the, the, a component of the music program there, sending out people to review all the uh, uh, performances of music organizations that applied to the state council for funding all across the state. Um, now what fitted you for that job? Where did you go into school? Uh, I went to Northwestern University. I was not a theater major, I was a communication studies major. Um, absolutely nothing qualified me for that job other than an interest in working in working in the arts broadly. And really, I, I and of, of, if there was any field that I had little experience with, in fact, it was music, the music field. But it was an opportunity to work in the New York State Council for the Arts and see how the funding world operated, how the governmental funding world operated. Um, I then I was there for for actually a relatively short period of time and. Then I um, began working in the dance world um, at a small modern dance company and then, as you mentioned, at the Alvin Ailey Dance Company mm -hmm. for nearly four years and uh, working in fundraising, mm -hmm. um, which is, um, you know, managing directors often come from the, the business side of things. There's no one model for how you get to be a, a managing director. You can come from a business background, you can come from a production background. And I came from really a development and marketing background, which is sort of the third avenue. Um, and you beg for money now? 
uh, on a daily basis. <laughs> Except in today, fact, if you yeah. take out your wallet, <laughs> how do, how do you, I can't get it out. Yeah. How do you? How do you? Uh, Tell a little bit, because this we are dealing with the nonprofit uh, world here, which is so so critical now and has changed. I mean, a a, a feeder for the commercial theater as well. Um, how do you uh, tell us a little bit about the the whole fundraising business? I mean, a great deal of it, I realize, is personal relations. A great deal of it is research, uh, finding the targets before you get them. But what I mean, that's a whole. And if you have to oversee that, you certainly know that. Scene. Right. Tell us a little about that. Um, well, there is, um, I certainly do not do this single-handedly. In fact, there is a development department that every not-for-profit theater has. There's a development director. We have a staff of two other people beyond the development director. Um, and, you know, in, in a word, it, it, fundraising is hard and, it, and it's getting harder. You know, I think everyone is familiar with cuts in governmental funding that have had a dramatic impact on our having to turn to other private sources, corporations, foundations, and individuals to raise money. Um, it's a, Excuse me, sure. do you raise money for the production, or do you raise money for the continuing of funding for the not-for-profit playwrights around? Um, the, the answer is both. Um, we well, let it, I'd like to talk about the production budget, for example, for Fit to be Tied how that comes about in a, in a not-for-profit. In, in fact, it's, that's Tim that would answer Yeah, I was going to bring that up. The, the captain of the USS, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Playwrights <laughs> Horizons here, uh, on the bridge, uh, who is responsible for all of these people, uh, are, is you, Tim. And you might talk about, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a marvelous institution and a big one in terms of impact, even though the budget may be whatever it is. Um, you know, you are responsible ultimately for picking the play, talking about that, and planning the budget. So if you could, you know, give well, us two or three hours on that, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, the, you know, there, there are the two sides of it. I mean, actually, the institutional uh, goings-on of day-to-day -day and the productions, you know, which fit into that's what we're there for. But you have to run them both at the same time. The production budgets, just to answer your question, Isabel, uh, really I hand that question off to Chris and Lynn first because they, they have an uncanny ability to read us. They read, when I read a script, you know, if it says, you know, the Titanic emerges from the floor of the theater and sails <laughs> through the audience, I know we probably can't afford to do it, it, it unless I had a very creative director like David Warren or something. But, <laughs> um, uh, usually, you know, you read a play and it doesn't seem anything as alarmingly expensive. Uh, the cast is in the size of 30 or something. And you hand it over to Chris, who has an uncanny ability to just see, you know, sort of add it up, tally it roughly. And uh, it's pretty often accurate. And we come up with a budget that we can then approve and fill into our annual budget. And then we stick by it. And uh, uh, you know, he leads the design team. Uh, in the initial meetings, we talk about what, if they have a great idea, it might be something more than we can afford, you adjust it. You try to preserve the artistic essence of the idea, I think, and, and uh, fulfill it. And I think, you know, given our budgets, we do a pretty great job at having beautiful productions at Playwright. So that's uh, the production. Is your design team in-house, or do you go out for your no, For the main stage shows, 
the design teams are chosen after the director's chosen. Mm -hmm. So uh, the and where does the bulk of the money come from? Uh, does it come from corporations or individuals? A subscription list? Are there reliable people who give you a certain amount of money every year, year in and year out? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, if you took the production budgets completely out of the theater and plugged ticket sales against them, it wouldn't be alarmingly out of kilter. You know, you do raise some money through ticket sales. That yeah, how come much, what is roughly the percentage of that ticket sales? Well, too? you know, we think of it in Very terms of we don't, we don't throw expenses like the cost of the theater into our production budgets and, and the staff, you know, my time and, you know, Janet's time and the whole staff's time. We just look at what it costs to do a show. So it's, it's really only appropriate to take the whole picture together. And, and you need to have, because we do so many things towards, to get to the production level in developing a play and developing relationships with playwrights and having reading series and having a literary department, uh, you know, all these things add up to a, 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 like a 35% ratio. Is that right, Leslie, I'd say? 35% of what? Of earned income versus unearned income to make the mm -hmm. institution balance its budget. But in it's actually, it's actually the percentage of, of contributed income is is high is higher. It's somewhat. It's it's actually pretty close to being even. Really. How does this differ from commercial theater? You're going to do fit to be tied and the producers and they they work up a budget, right? The budget covers what it is to mount this show. Now, are you this on the same level with them now up to this point? you have the budget for this show that's coming along, right? Well, the budget is much smaller in the nonprofit mm -hmm. theater. I understand that, of mm -hmm. course. But I want to know what the steps are and how well, we're different. One of the things, as Tim mentioned, we do not, we, our budgets are direct cost only. My time is not in the fit to be tied budget. Chris's time is not in the fit to be tied budget. If a commercial, in a commercial production, all the all a general manager, a production manager, uh, a press agent, all are directly on a commercial show are direct costs for that show. So mm -hmm. you it's not inflated. It's just that the labor on a commercial show is um, added into that budget. So for instance, we're fit to be tied in our house. This is the production and the running of it through November 10th is approximately 240,000 just to mount fit to be tied and was about 400,000. I was I was going to say my guess would be it be about mm -hmm. 400,000. Mm -hmm. So that's a $160,000 difference just in mount I mean to get it remounted to rent the theater. We don't charge our we own our building um, so we don't charge theater rent. We don't charge the person who cleans the theater. Um, our <laughs> box office mm -hmm. Um, is but what if the show was uh, and I, I guess uh, shows have been have moved from playwrights horizons to Broadway um, now Janet I would say you would be uh, and and uh, and Lynn I would think with him would be working out first of all you suddenly would go beyond the or would you the most favored nations for the actors the equity system would change. Do you have a favorite nations with the actors, or yes. they, you do? So everybody gets yes. the same at playwrights. Yeah. Correct. 
But if it mm -hmm. went to Broadway, would that still apply? It would be negotiated with each actor's agent. Exactly. It would be different. Be very, very different. Very plan. different would be my guess. Billing would be negotiated. Salary would be negotiated. This is the famous fact about the commercial theater on Broadway that there were producers who haven't had a hit in 30 years who still are making two or $300,000 a year by making sure that the producer gets the, the cut of every bit of capitalization that he acquires. He's, he gets it off the top every time. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a perfectly wonderful system for him. <laughs> <laughs> so all for, for not-for-profit, it's completely different. It, it's much more uh, true to how life ought to be in a society in which very little is. How is the relationship between the playwright and the, uh, uh, let's say, in the theater, the, the theater entity, the nonprofit theater entity, in terms of percentage of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of royalties? I mean, do you own a piece with it in perpetuity of the play? Not in perpetuity. Or well, uh, for how long? Well, that's a contract question. I know them because I've read them. You know, but uh, there's a, a percent of royalties paid uh, for the run of the Playwrights Rising show, correct? Yes. And then uh, there is a thing called subsidiary rights for if there are future productions. That's one of the items that gets negotiated. Although we have a standard contract that uh, where that percentage is work out according to how many weeks the show has run at Playwrights Horizons. And, uh, and usually if a show transfers to a commercial producer, we hand over the author's contracts to them and negotiate a separate deal with the producer, and then the producer gets the subsidiary rights. And we get a, a small portion of whatever they negotiate. Mm -hmm. And that proportion changes. It's right. not a standard. It's whatever's negotiated. It's pretty. It, it is pretty standard. It's pretty standard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a standard. Um, it varies. It varies within one or two percentage points in all the nonprofit theaters, and then it. I mean, the fact is, a commercial production is usually forty percent of the original commercial producers. After, what's what varies is how long it takes for them to earn forty percent. Whether they earn forty percent in six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks, twelve weeks. But, um, and, and it's like, and the only place that it's different is Lincoln Center. Lincoln Center doesn't own any futures of the plays they produce. But every, but every commercial theater um, producer eventually owns 40% of the play, which is a delightful arrangement. <laughs> 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 which is why everybody assumes, to be honest, that, that, that all you ever want out of life is to uh, transfer a play. It is quite often, I think, not in the best interest of the playwright to transfer a play. I mean, he, he, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. What you're saying is, I'm going to make enough money, this play is going to be successful enough, it's going to run at least six months, so I'm going to make enough money that it won't matter that I no longer own 40% of it when it goes out into the country, uh, you know, and, and plays in all of those cities. You, you've now lost 40% of that if it's at regional theaters. Um, as opposed to a touring show, which you you're getting paid, it's still the original producers, so they're not taking 40% of their own money, so you're getting your royalty. But, so it's not always necessarily financially advantageous to transfer for the playwright. It always is for the director. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you are getting a percentage when it goes out. Yes, yes, so but, but, but when it goes out, for instance, uh, if, if South Coast Rep, if South, South Coast Rep did uh, Raised in Captivity uh, in, outside of Los Angeles, and, um, I got, I don't remember, I, I probably, it was probably like 6% of the gross, or let's say, let's imagine mm -hmm. that. So I get 6% of the gross, and it's a big theater, South Coast Rep. 
and a beautiful theater, by the by, and I hope they are going to do more of my work. Um, <laughs> I get 6% of the growth, and the vineyard, which originally produced Raised in Captivity, gets 5% of that. Now, when South Coast Rep chooses to do food chain, if I get 6% of the growth, the commercial producers, because it was a commercial production in New York, get 40% of my money. I get 6% from South Coast Rep, and they get 40% of that. So that's the big difference <coughs> between giving up 5 and 40. That's it. Uh, yes, I agree with you. Yes, I tell yes. you. <laughs> <laughs> we all did the I mean, math very, very quickly. You, yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to have it make a difference oh, to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Leslie, uh, are you the one, because I think these are, or maybe it's Tim, uh, whoever, uh, with, uh, with all of this, there are a lot of other elements to a production uh, that aren't included on this panel, but we might talk about, which is the publicity, uh, the uh, artwork, the designing of the, all of those elements, uh, the, the ad agencies. Do you have a standard one, or do you do, you do it show for show? Uh, do you have one one a agency or what? Well, we've been uh, we just hired a new ad agency. Uh, that's really Leslie's bailiwick. Okay. You know, the the hiring of that. I participated in the in the interview process, but she searched out the first. And you make leads. the deal then? Is that it? Once well, Leslie sets it up. It's just we pay the bills. I mean, there is no deal. <laughs> it's, but uh, you know, on that, I have to say, in terms of the not-for-profit world, it is a, it is such a debilitating situation in New York because we really don't we don't pay the premium. We don't hire their designers. They don't really make very much money because our budgets are so small. We don't really advertise that much. So we have over the last three years had three different ad agencies and we have we've been you know what part of we want a uniformity of look we want um, something eye-catching we want it all for our two dollars and <laughs> it is completely frustrating to an ad agent to deal with us because we're demanding we're uh, you know co committee oriented and it's very frustrating for them so when we went on this interviewing process this time we went around and said we're really hard clients we pay no money and um, <laughs> we want a lot of attention <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. and we actually are really happy with our ad agency Ladon Wilner and Wiener I mean mm -hmm. they really they believe I mean, it was it was great we walked into this meeting they they had nothing but ideas John Milner was a subscriber to Playwright, so he, you know, he got a lot of bonus points just for being familiar with our work. And it's, it's, we're so gratified because they're not spending anywhere the amount of time with our whining and unhappiness. They just turn around really professional work knowing that, yes, we take out one ad. I'm fit to be tied. Actually, we're taking out two ads, I'm happy to say. Um, one in this Friday's paper. Um, and Ladon Wilner just turns it around, gives us a, a professional, um, like eight choices to look at for type treatment. The decisions are, are quicker. Their time isn't wasted. Our time isn't wasted. So it's really been, I mean, I, I only point that out because I think that is Chris's experience in trying, okay, we need a video screen for this or a video wall for this production, that's a $60,000 item. Playwrights Horizons can't afford that. So we're, we are continually begging on many sides through for all the things that we get. And I, I really agree with 
Tim, that it, our productions are very professional, and for the amount of money we spent, I mean, coming from a commercial experience and seeing what it spent, I mean, it took me my first year at Playwrights Horizons to believe that this actually happened for that amount of money. Mm. Uh, it was, it was. I mean, I thought, God, the commercial world could learn a whole lot from this, uh, and we could do a whole lot more shows if we. Um, you get a feedback from your audience, from your subscribers, people. Uh, do you know what they expect of you, or do you have any sense of that? Or how do you get a sense of that? Well, I'll, I'll answer that question. Um, I, I think that, um, well, first of all, we do during, what, during the run of a show, we have three evenings, sometimes four evenings, where we have post-performance discussions. But, but rather than it's not so much a subscriber gripe session, if you will. It's really a chance for the subscribers to talk with Tim and with Nikki. It's and a love fest. It's a love fest. <laughs> I don't think but it is, damn it. <laughs> but it's really to talk about the process. It's to talk about how, what made Nikki write about, you know, what are the themes and issues involved in the play. It's, and it's a real exchange of ideas. And it's also a chance for us to educate if our subscribers, if you will, about the whole process of Playwrights Horizons, which is not just about the play they're seeing on the stage, but about the whole development of new theater. Which is important to us because subscribers are different than single ticket buyers. I mean, mm -hmm. I do oh, think yeah. that they feel a real sense of ownership of Playwrights Horizons. We have subscribers who have been there for 13 years, maybe right. longer. and. Um, and we know when they like a show, and we know when they don't like a show, and they will call us and tell us, or stop Tim in the lobby, and tell us exactly what they think. And that's, and that's a good thing, because it helps them feel connected to, to the whole institution. And you have a board, and does the board come out of the subscription list, really? How does that work? Uh, our, our board, we insist that our board are all subscribers, but that's not where it, where it comes from. I mean, that comes from... Uh, uh, people that are perhaps, you know, people that I may have known or Tim may have known, people who, there are, some have come from subscribers, mm -hmm. actually, people mm -hmm. who have expressed a real interest in the theater. I'd like to focus in on this production. I'd like to get back to the production of Fit to be Tied and, and try for the people who would be happily or foolishly enough to want to be producers to find out exactly what the steps are. How did Nikki, and why did you come to Playwrights Horizon with the show? And after you decided to give it to them, then what took place? And if it's at all possible to give us some figures along the way, or percentages, until you finally got to that opening night. Hmm? Um, I had written Pterodactyl, this is before Race and Captivity and Food Chain, and I received, I was up at Vassar, New York Stage and Film, working on Race and Captivity, a workshop of it, and I received two commissions within the same week, um, one was from Playwrights Horizons, and it was uh, sponsored by Steven Spielberg's company, Amblin. Apparently, he gave them enough money to hire... Fif Fifteen. They gave them enough money to hire... Uh, <laughs> to commission six playwrights. Uh, and um, it was for... I have no shame. It was... Uh, I've been telling you this. It was for $10,000, which is very substantial for a nonprofit theater commission. Um, the same week, I got one from Manhattan Theater Club, $5,000, but guess who got theirs first? <laughs> I was still waiting for their play. Um, so it wasn't a question of why. I, I went, but I will say, and I've said this before, that I went, I was very happy to get the commission from Playwrights because I had come to, I came to New York in 19, 
um, 77, or just 76, actually. And um, it was a theater that I always, I sent my plays to Playwrights Horizons before Tim worked there, he realized recently. From right after I finished college, when I started writing plays, I was sending them to Playwrights Horizons. And there were, and in those days, theaters had very different identities. Playwrights Horizons was sort of the middle ground. It was a little avant-garde and yet accessible. So you saw like Chris Durang there. And as opposed to Manhattan Theater Club, which was always more commercial in those days, and, and uh, the public, which was much more avant-garde. And that was the theater I wanted to be at Playwrights Horizons. I had to like outlive two artistic directors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the second one was, came and went pretty quickly, granted. <laughs> but, uh, but I eventually got in. So I uh, wrote the play um, pretty, I, I, write, I don't write very often, but I write very quickly. It took about four or five weeks. Uh, gave it to Tim. We did one reading of it. And, um, I, and then Tim, I think, knew immediately that he wanted to do the play. Fool, drunkard, and feeble-minded soul that he is. <laughs> Well, then what, so okay, so you wanted to do the play, following on what Isabel said. Uh, then what happens now in this production? So you say, aha, that's the play I want to do. Yeah, I mean, now what? I mean, really, if I may go back a little bit more, just because it's part sure. of, we are Playwrights Horizons, so the, the cultivation of relationships with playwrights, I think, you know, why did we even commission him? Uh, I was wondering that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was a writer who I had... As Nikki said, he'd been submitting plays there for a long time, and he, it was like this screeching voice, uh, you know, like 10 years ago, and then it was a voice you, you, you had to pay attention to, you know, and we believe in treating each play, you know, individually. So, it, you know, at first there were like these sort of, I liked your play, but sort of, you know, like distant letters, and those letters got more and more appreciative until and Nick used to produce all of his own work uh, or with uh, this theater in the West Side uh, Highway. And it was on the highway. It was on the, <laughs> the renovated toll booth. <laughs> the it didn't have much of a balcony, but it was very attractive. <laughs> I knew it as the Vortex Theater. You come back theater. to Chris with that then? Do you then say, we want to do this play? And, and then you talk to Chris about how much it's going to be? Where, well, yeah, once we decide to do the play, all right. you know, then we... Then we then, hand it off to what? Chris, even before we hire the director, you know, and he tries to get a ballpark without even having talked to the director of what the director okay, so is. We're, you're now, we've got the play. you decided to do it. You want to know how much it's going to cost. You come in then. Hmm? Well, like Lynn and I together, um, it's really a team effort because my, I spend only uh, about half the budget. Um, so I, I try to take a look at the play and, and, and give an idea of what it's going to cost to produce scenery, costume, lights, and sound. That's based on what? For that piece. It's based on, frankly, guesswork. You know, it's based on looking at the play and seeing, seeing what kind of, of, of um, uh, physical space the playwright is requiring, uh, ho hopefully being able to, to discuss with the director what that director's uh, particular take on that play is going to be, really how they want to realize the, the piece. Um, looking at things we've done in the past to see what playwrights' costs have been and comparing them to what this piece is going to need. Well, uh, you, for instance, need, we just talked about a, a large projection or something like that. You ran into that, so you have to find an alternative. That's your job, to maybe try to suggest that. Yeah, we, I, I try to handle it in two ways. I, um, I like to have all the information going into a discussion, so behind the designer's back, in a way, I'll try to find out exactly what this is going to cost and what, what other alternatives might be. 
uh, and at the same time negotiating or discussing with, with uh, director and, and uh, uh, designer and playwright in this case, because it was a, a real team effort to uh, find other cheaper alternatives or other ways we might uh, arrive at the aesthetic of the play, but, but more cheaply. Um, and juggling those things, we arrive at, at, uh, at, at something we think we can afford. Uh, there are times when the, the, the design, the expense of it is linked to which designer you actually choose. And there, I mean, in this case, uh, when I talked to Nikki about doing the play, the discussion about directors was very brief. That's what we, I was going to say, because did you come, did the, Nikki come that's to the, the first question. That's yeah. the first question when you decide to do a play is who's going to direct it. And in this case, I, w I was actually privileged enough when Nikki did pterodactyls to receive a phone call and he discussed some of his choices. And I, I thought David was a great choice for that play because David has a, I mean, I've known David's earliest professional jobs were at Playwrights Horizon, so I feel like I know his work. And he has a strong aesthetic sense, a very beautiful sort of lyrical, poetic, quality and Nikki's work is both that and screamingly funny and I thought that you know my opinion back then and proved to be true was that that mixture you know the comedy would take care of itself and David would bring out the the other deeper elements of his work so when we discussed directors and Nikki said David I mean it was a short discussion um, I, you know, just by the way, this is uh, slightly off the subject, but I know that there must be playwrights who watch, who watch this on Channel 75. <laughs> and and it's, you never hear this kind of thing, but there's a theater, a, a, a sort of important theater in New York, who, uh, which isn't around recently, well, with Circle Rep. Um, <laughs> but a, recent, a really important theater that closed in the last month, um, <laughs> who uh, one time said to me, we want to do a play of yours and we want this director. And uh, I said no. And and you don't hear like that kind of thing as a playwright if you're working. The f your choice of who should direct your play is the last thing that a theater. I mean, it's the first tenant of of creative freedom is uh, you get to pick the director. And then in many ways the director gets to pick everybody else, and you work on that together. But the only person you get to pick is the director. Now, if the artistic director of a theater says, "I really think you're wrong, and you should think about that person," that's fine. But the minute a th any any theater says to you, we want to do your play and this person will direct, have the good sense to say, I'll hold on to it. I don't need the approval that badly. Right. And in this case with David, uh, he had a, a battery of, I keep looking there because David's here, if you're wondering. Um, uh, he had design team that had worked with uh, him on Nikki's plays before. so it made just total sense to go after them. We decided early enough that we could try to get them all to commit to it and fit it in their schedule. Is there any consideration of money in this thing? Well, it's a favored nations contract, again, for, for the designers. I had mentioned that sometimes the selection of the designer will affect the budget. Mm -hmm. And there are times where you'll hire a director and the designer design team has not been chosen. And you'll interview designers, and they'll have different conceptions of how to do the show. And some of those conceptions might be much more expensive than others. Uh, and that, then, is a factor in the budgeting of the show. Now, now then, OK, so you have the, you have the design team. Chris has uh, put that together with you. You have the, the, the director. Uh, this is after the director has come in. 
Now, Janet, do you you obviously work? I'm usually on. I'm usually working on the project before the designers are yeah. even oh, set. Oh, much before. Almost I mean, as soon as you choose to yeah. do a play, you and often you know do a reading is. and and the With the director. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the ideas of the casting director on the reading. With the playwright and the director. With yes, the yeah, mm -hmm. we d we do um, we did a reading almost as soon as you handed the play in, I think, and uh, just before. <laughs> <laughs> he just talked about it a lot, and uh, um, and w from th that from that one reading, we had a very strong feeling about uh, where we wanted to head with the cast. And what, for instance, she was on this. Uh, uh, you know, on, on this seminar two days ago. But what, what made you think about uh, uh, Miss Smart? Well, she's a wonderful comedian and a wonderful actress. I mean, she, she's... Did that leap to mind? Was that sort of your first choice initially? Or was it yours, what, David's, Nikki's? Well, she's, well um, we had done... We did two readings, and Jean was in Los Angeles and not accessible to us. And Lynn Redgrave was here working on Moon Over Buffalo, and she did a reading of the play. And was, uh, we thought about asking her to do the play. Her schedule wasn't available. Then we did a play with a great actress, Penny Fuller. But we felt like she wasn't quite right. And I love, 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 love. I love you, Penny, if you're watching on Channel 70. I love you. Um, but we did feel like that she wasn't, she didn't, it, it's all about, because it really is about pairing the people off. Yeah, that's what we found out, I think, and in the in, in watching these the different balance. combinations. And um, that she didn't pair off quite as well with, with the person we decided on for Arlock. And then Jean had worked at Playwrights before. She'd done um, The End of the Day at Playwrights. And so they had a the, the theater had a relationship with her and um, knew her as a stage actress more than me. I went on faith. I've gone on faith with David very often. I mean, because I'd never seen her on stage. I'd only seen her, you know, as um, serial murders and um, interior decorators. But that it did suggest a range to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, then okay. So now we, we've got these together, and and we obviously have dates, things ready to go. Now, you're, I get who is it? I guess Leslie uh, and Tim. You have the play. Now you've got to get to the ad, the ad agency to plan the attack, the marketing, and I think that's, how do you do that? And what, what Although goes it on? happens long after, I mean, the decision to do this play was made in May, when, well, I don't remember, it was, months and months. I don't remember when he turned it in, it was, it was. Long time ago. Long time ago. And the, the decisions about advertising and, and how you're going to market the show come six weeks, two months. I mean, we start talking maybe even as, as early as three months before the show. When did that decision show. on marketing, on advertising, not marketing, advertising? Mm -hmm. Doesn't that come before marketing? Your, your no, ads, actually, your, marketing oh. comes first. Because that's marketing how you decide how much money to spend on advertising. Yes, correct? that's part of it. Advertising is a component of the marketing budget. Mm -hmm. It's all geared towards how are you going to get people in to see the, the play. Um, and when you are a subscription theater, and in, uh, you start with a base of subscribers that you already know. I mean, they just have to simply choose what night they're coming, but you know you're not starting with no seats sold. Which, when you're doing the food chain, you start with an empty theater, and everything is single ticket sales. Um, so that's a real luxury, if you will, of, of not-for-profit theaters that, that have a subscriber base. But then you have to do single ticket marketing. Um, part of that is done through direct mail marketing, postcards, literally, that 17,000, 20,000 postcards that you send out to targeted audiences who... Where do you get your list from? The lists come from a wide range of sources. Um, uh, 
other shows that, that of Nikki's that have been produced from the Vineyard Theater where Pterodactyls and the Vineyard was produced from the food chain, from other, uh, where else did we choose from? Uh, I think we chose okay. other theater companies that had uh, single ticket buyers with comedies. Um, it's been a long time since we, I mean, we look at the show. But you know, there is, uh, and also I would think, okay, uh, you know, going through it, you say fit to be tied. Okay, do we have, what is the logo going to be? Do we have an angel with uh, tied up? Or, <laughs> well, or what, 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 who may, in this instance, it. it is um, the ad agency does the, the title treatment, the fit to be tied title and what it looks like. We chose this year to work with a, an illustrator um, who we chose literally from the pages of the New Yorker looking at all the illustrations that were in there got in a number of artists with their portfolios and wanted to have a, a look not only for this show but for our whole season so that there would be an, a, a sort of similarity in aesthetic for the illustrations for all the shows for the for the season. Nikki you may yeah. have a word We're or two have to, to add. We have to break thank God. Yeah. <laughs> right now we have to take a break and please don't go far away. We're going to come right back again and continue the discussion on Fit to be Tied, the production of Playwrights Horizon, what it takes to produce this show. It's just the whole, one of the whole of Playwrights Horizon. Wonderful programs. Let's go. The ugly story behind this culture. The ugly story. <laughs> This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing with the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, and this seminar is on the production of Fit to be Tied at Playwrights Horizon. This is the nitty-gritty of producing. And so we're going to continue with George White and Brendan Gill, our co-moderators, who are delving into the process of what it is to produce a show non-commercially. Would you continue? Yes, I, I would like to. Uh, Nikki said, for those of you watching, do not adjust your set. It's okay. We are, Janet Forster uh, has, uh, has been replaced. She's a casting emergency. <laughs> and you heard us alluding to the fact that, uh, that David Warren uh, was uh, with us today, and he has joined us uh, just at the opportune time because after we talked about casting and all of the other events, now we bring in the director, which I thought was very, very graceful of us in terms of all of this. So here we are with, with, uh, with, with David. And I, I, there's a question. I'm Janet. I, <laughs> right, that's right, exactly. Um, exactly, we'll get into this in a moment. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, and, and I wanted to, uh, to ask, since the, the show was cast, um, were there any changes in the in the script that was brought on by the casting? Did that affect any changes? And I think that's with you and, and Nikki yeah. to a degree. Uh, I, I honestly think in this case, in the case of this play, that did not happen. Um, sometimes actors will make suggestions or ask questions um, which can lead to cuts or subtle adjustments, but uh, in this case, no. Uh, because I think if that happens, 
usually that's, well, not always, but it can, it, that, that sort of speaks to an actor's limitation. You, you know, I can't make this work this way. You have to, you have to rewrite this play for me. Um, sometimes an actor is just so wonderful that a playwright will, you know, sort of go with them in a new direction. But, uh, and Nikki can jump in. I, I don't think that happened at all in this case. What do you think? Ditto. <laughs> no, but you do sit in and say, "Look, these are the possibilities. This is who I think of the two. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think actually, Gene was an idea that I had that um, Nikki liked immediately. Uh, I I would never sort of cast someone that Nikki doesn't approve, um, but we tend to agree um, in casting. You know, in, in, during auditions, very rarely will I say I love that person, and Nikki will say, "That's interesting. I hated him." Mm -hmm. Uh, that almost never happened. Did the actors audition for this? Uh, some of the actors auditioned. Mm -hmm. Gene Smart did not audition. Um, Actually, only Boyd auditioned. Gene Smart did not audition. Scott Cunningham had done a reading of the play, so he mm -hmm. wasn't called into audition. As had Dick and, Latessa. Um, Dick Latessa had Dick did a reading of the play. I think we offered it to him at, at intermission. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, we loved him so much in this reading that we said to Janet, "Don't let him leave the building without Hold that thought, Dick." Like in front of the speech, and he's like, "Would you like?" <laughs> hey, you're sharp. Need a job? <laughs> Is now, that normal for your company not to audition actors or stars? It's it's common not to audition, you know, all mm -hmm. of your, right? I mean, yeah. I'm sure that's true. I think it's always a combination. I mean, there are actors like Scott Cunningham who are not stars, but we happen to know them very well. So it would have been absurd to say, Scott, would you audition for this part that you've already done a reading of, uh, not unlike a role you've already played in a production uh, of a play by Nicky's? It would have been insulting. Um, on the other hand, uh, Jean didn't audition because she's very well known, and there's mm -hmm. no reason in the world to ask someone like Jean Smart to audition. Um, or, you know, I think people like actually Jean would. I know she auditions for movies, um, but we also knew she was so perfect for the part. We were so excited by the idea. Um, so it, it's, it's a combination. Now, now, David, do you work with Chris uh, in terms of the production? Uh, you know, planning. We know about the other, but but actually, do you. Uh, yeah, all the time. All the time. I mean, Chris sits down with the designers, particularly the set designer uh, and me, and offers suggestions from the beginning. You know, does this have to be this material? Uh, does this have to move this way? If we could make this wall this way, we could save a lot of money by doing this, this, and this. I mean, that's sort of his job, uh, is to offer suggestions and, um, in fact, creative suggestions. Um, and, and so I work very closely with Chris. Yeah. I mean, and uh, Nikki, do you interact with this as well? Are you part of this process? I Are you the one that makes the decision about metallic eyeshadow, well, for instance? Well, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for myself, yeah. <laughs> oh, you made for the show. Um, yesterday, you know, when I was here yesterday with David uh, Huang and, and um, Mary Rogers, and, you know, they were like, well, I go sometimes, I check in the other day. And, you know, they, were, they really were not, that's how she was, I love her. But she was like, if I'm up by noon, I go to rehearsal. And I'm just <laughs> yes, I'm a fabulous woman. But <laughs> if she's up by noon, she goes. I actually do sit in on every design meeting and say, I think, maybe, what do you think of this? And what do you think of this? I like it. I think it's fun. I wouldn't go if I, I wouldn't do any of it if I didn't think it was fun. But mm -hmm. I do, yes. Apart from being fun, isn't it important that you sit in on it? 
Mm, I, I, it's not for me it's to say. To me. I, it is important to me. Okay. I mean, Nikki does come to a lot of design meetings, which is unusual for writers. I, 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 Would you I, recommend it? Would either? Absolutely. Of you I mean, at a certain point, uh, the the writer has to have a response to the to the to our visual response to his play. I think it and also depends upon the writer. The fact is, I did. I was an art major, right? And I do have strong opinions about visuals and, and uh, about every lighting cue. I have an But opinion. even without that, even, even an, a, a, a writer who doesn't, who is not as visually sophisticated will have an opinion and it seems so foolish to me to wait until it's too late or wait until the ideas have evolved and then have the writer say, well, no, I just think the world has to be more ab abstract than that. And we've already sort of built this model and moved ahead and sort of conceived something and perhaps misconceived it. So um, I think it is important, uh, and I think in the in the case of Nikki Silver, it's very helpful. What happens in other productions, other than, for example, the? I go to their design. He's got an opinion about everything, <laughs> even my other shows. <laughs> no, I know. I, I think that um, you mean other with other writers. I I say to the writer. I mean, when I work with Richard Greenberg, when I work with Tom Donaghy, even if they don't say, I want to come to the you know, to an early design meeting, I invite them. Because I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think they might have just one idea, but it will be the idea that sort of ignites the whole process. Um, and I think, I, I think directing is so collaborative, it's and foolish. Who, who, who else is in, speaking of that, who else is in that meeting? Uh, Tim, are you, Lynn, Leslie? They're not at early design meetings. I think that would be inappropriate. It would be inappropriate to have Chris at an early design meeting because we're still in the land of make-believe. We're still, what, what could it be? What would we love it to be? And, and the one time someone in Chris's position tried to kind of horn in on a meeting like that, it made me very uncomfortable because early on someone was saying, well, you know, moving wagons, that's very expensive, winches are, and, and I just said, I don't even know what we're doing yet, get out of this meeting. Um, once we have a real set of ideas, then it's important and appropriate for someone like Chris to come in and say, this is just so expensive. I mean, he didn't in this case, they made the set happen almost exactly as designed, so, you know, they, are, they, they sort of spoiled us for the next time. <laughs> Right. Uh, but no, these, then when the set is sort of, when the design is evolved, then I show it to Tim um, and, and ask him to sign off on it. I mean, he, the, he, he didn't in this case, but it's possible for an artistic director to say, this is horrible, I, this is the wrong response to this play, got, go back, rethink. Um, that didn't happen, though. Well, that, that goes back to your whole training, Tim. And what is your training? Because we didn't bring that up. We know that you're the captain, but how did you get there? Uh, literary. Um, I was a literary manager for 10 years <laughs> and uh, associate artistic director. I was fortunate enough to start at Playwrights Horizons uh, when Andre Bishop was artistic director and Bob Moss was still very much a presence of kind of a guardian angel and used to tell us these legendary stories of the beginning of Playwrights Horizons and then I and I worked under Don Scardino so I've worked under every I haven't worked under Bob exactly but I know I've worked with <clears throat> all the artistic directors and I feel like I understand the mission very well because it's a writer's theater and uh, um, what was your background I mean, were you my background before that was partly academic uh, you know I had a B PhD and also in I was directing uh, it was a program that had both directing and scholarship that? at Stanford University. Mm -hmm. So um, I had been writing for a long time, and when I emerged from that, I was desperate to do something 
fun and creative again, so I came to Playwrights Horizons and did an internship. As David had done an internship before, we have a, a fantastic intern program there. In fact, Andre Bishop had been an intern at Playwrights mm -hmm. Horizons. So uh, that's how I began with this great internship in the literary department, and it led to a job like a year later as the literary manager, where I found that field fascinating and interesting, and I had a, a feeling for it and a knack for it and a, a great teacher under Andre to be an apprentice under. And, um, you know, it grew naturally, I feel, into this present job. Uh -huh. when you, as, a, as a writer, I'm startled this may be here to say that you emerged from writing as if it were <laughs> I know it's penitentiary. <laughs> it's a hard to escape. It's, it's hard to write a dissertation that's 250 pages and you're well, slaving at a desk, you yeah. know, and you feel like you haven't done anything, you know, except just write for a long time. And I, you know, liter a literary manager, I think an important thing about it is that you have a literate sense and have a sense of what literary writing and dramatic writing in general is, but understand the possibilities, you know, dramatic theatrical possibilities of the work you're reading and have a sense of production and what things sh could be and what are great parts for actors and how humor comes alive. You need to have production experience to be able to read plays and see that, I've, I've found. So, I mean, that side of me that likes to direct and be there in the process, you know, I, I was anxious to get back to, and I think Playwrights Horizons was the per perfect place for me to fulfill both those sides of myself. How common we, is it to have a literary person in, in residence like that? In, uh, in other theaters. It's more common now. these days, especially, I mean, it depends on if you're a theater that does new work, you know. Most of the theaters that are doing new work on a regular basis need to have a literary person there, you know. I, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but... I have to know what we the PhD was about. We talked about the advertising agency. I'll tell you later. <laughs> what about the press agent? Do you yeah. have a press agent? And, and what exactly. happens when you have your, your first review? How do you... How do you begin to stress that review, and how do you begin to work with it? What, what well, about a press agent? the press agent starts, uh, <coughs> essentially their contract starts first day of rehearsal. But we, our press agent, who's James Morrison, um, is, he, we hire him for an entire season. So even when he's not on contract, he's very much a part of any of our discussions about placing Playwrights Horizons in front of the press as to a show in front of the press. So he is in our marketing meetings. Uh, we start well in advance of the first day of rehearsal discussing who the target market is. And James will, um, once the casting is in place, um, once the creative team is in place, can do some strategy about who's going to, who's going to, and what is that to strategy? How does he build that? Yeah, well, and, and what did he say in this particular case? What? Yeah, exactly. Picking up on what Isabel said, uh, what what went on? What did what what were the decisions? Tell us how you what. Well, Nikki has a following, and just <laughs> so going to build it. I think we'll build it I on mean, Nikki. He will have a following. Nikki's play. <laughs> at, 
They're both right in right. hospitals and country homes. <laughs> <laughs> and pre federal penitentiaries. <laughs> but and also, so, you know, also, you know, Gene Smart, uh, the, the, the press agent obviously said that that's, um, that, 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 that's a right. name that we should stress. But for Sadly, this is our biggest booking, which is really a sad <laughs> <laughs> We thought this was a prime PR opportunity. Now I find out it doesn't air until December. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in, uh, for instance, magazines, you need to know two months in advance. We didn't know Gene Smart two months right. in advance, but Nikki's done several magazine uh, articles. Gene Smart was a great opportunity, and she's been in the press everywhere. And um, at opening night, we had many luminary people at that that are, it seems, many of them are friends of David. So we had the press agent knew in advance who was going to be at the opening night, arrange for P the paparazzi to be there to get uh, photos. And How important is that to a play? It's, it's not important to the play. It's important that the play, play, the name of the play, someone in the play, someone associated with the play, it's just another presence in the press that reminds people that that event is happening. So it's important in that uh, as a crucial. reminder. It's crucial. I mean, we do the best work we can as artists, and then it has to be sold. Y we have maybe a total of 8,000 possible seats exactly. that we can fill in a city of you know, 8 million just in the city. And, and then uh, there's a lot of other events vying for You want to create this, the mystique. You want to, that it is something people right. want to see. Right. And, and Nikki didn't die on opening night, even though we <laughs> talked about that. <laughs> right. so you're but I'm not feeling well, really. <laughs> <laughs> you're always, I mean, you're, you're always looking for something just to make people take notice, because there's a lot of theater. Well, Leslie, you pick up on it, because yes, indeed, the reviews which came out, were, which are very positive and marvelous reviews, what do you do then? I mean, I mean, but that doesn't always sell it because you know there are there are reviews and reviews. And what do you pick out of the review to take it and go with it? Is that your decision in association with the advertising agency, the press? Agency? What? Again, it is. It's all we keep on coming back to that word collaboration. But it's no one person's decision. We, after the reviews came out, we um, Lynn and I and our and our press rep and. Tim, we look at the reviews and we look at quotes that we may want to pull. The, the ad that Lynn referred to, which will appear in tomorrow's times, if this show is airing tomorrow, um, we'll have a series of quotes. It's going to be ancient um, history by the right. time <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll be a series of quotes that talk about this, this wide range of people who felt very positive and, and were full of accolades about, about the show. So that is one thing that we do. But James... Uh, in his role as press rep, is talking to the press from even before he literally begins with this production, talking about the nature of the show and Nikki. And as more information comes in, it's this ongoing process. So even if um, someone doesn't want to write an, an article or an interview before the show opens, he's laid the groundwork so that that interest is there and that they've it's in their it's in their minds as something that they might do. You know some. Reporters take much more of a, a wait and see. Let's see what happens, and you know, once the show opens. But in this instance, given Nikki's following and David's and Jean's, we were able to get a lot of advance press as well. There are many more questions, and some of them are to be answered right now. So I'm sorry to interrupt you with your answers, but perhaps we'll get some more of the some of the questions to be answered with our guests. Hi, my name's Tom Hartman. I'm an aspiring writer. I've uh, question for either Tim Lynn or Leslie. I wanted to ask, are, were there any financial surprises in producing Fit to be Tied? 
What? Did anything go My yes. positive we or negative? Had, <laughs> we had a financial surprise in that we had, we, part of our agreement with Actors' Equity is we don't have to hire under studies. So our six, after our sixth, no, fifth performance of Fit to be Tied. Um, Third. Gene was Tuesday. Tuesday. That was fourth. Anyway, Friday, <laughs> Saturday, yeah. and Sunday, after, two on Sunday. No quarreling, children. After the first weekend of previews, Jean <laughs> um, Smart fell in a pothole and broke her ankle. So she could not perform for uh, several days. She came, returned to us Saturday evening. We had to cancel five performances. One, th uh, the following week on a Tuesday, another actor had an emergency appendectomy. So we lost seven performances total of Fit to be Tied, which meant that we had to reschedule all those people that had those tickets for the canceled performances into new performances, which meant that all that ticket revenue was lost. That's a kick in the head financially, was, plus a yes. cash flow mm -hmm. issue that you have to deal with, I may. And, uh, uh, I mean, there was a great momentum that had started on the show. So not only, I mean, I think it was after the first weekend, you all said, we're ready to open. And, you know, everything was just getting in great shape. I think so the we, word is Kinahara. That's <laughs> what we did. Um, hi, my name is Roberta Serretta, and I'm a writer, and this is for Tim. I'd like to know what the submission route would be for the playwright once they submit the play to your group. Well, we have an open door submissions policy, which means you, we don't require you to submit through an agent or a famous person. And uh, <laughs> plays come in, we have a small staff, of a literary manager, a literary associate, and a resident literary assistant, uh, and myself, uh, to read plays. So we get around 2,500, 2,000 to 2,500 scripts a year come in, and they go through a process of, of um, screening and reading. Uh, every play we read gets a report and a, or a personal letter. And uh, out of those plays, I try to cultivate relationships with writers who I find are promising. You never know how a writer is going to develop in time. You know, we're not a, a theater that does work by writers who've never written before, but we frequently do, uh, you know, sort of first New York professional productions of things. And I feel it's important, given that, to try to ascertain who you think might develop uh, and do what you can to be there to encourage them, whether it's uh, just through letters that you write. The way you write the letter is very important. The combination of praise and candor and, and, and also um, then through reading sometimes, um, you try to develop those relationships. So Nikki had, for example, I had been corresponding with for years and beginning to see his work we did the first reading of a play of his, you know, after he'd been submitting for a long time. But that, you know, you try to establish relationships. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my name's Phil DiPietro, and I'm an actor, director, and I'm developing a, a show, or have produced a couple also. But um, my question actually follows up to that question regarding developing new writers. And is there a fi physical and... Uh, artistic imperative to choose only quantified and established playwrights, would you say, for the theater as a whole, even for your smaller theater? Or do you take a chance on young, or I should say, 
unknown writers. I, I mean, think that, I think you just answered that in a sense. That yeah, well, it's a, it's, there's a, it's a good question actually because it's, it speaks to the climate that we're in. And, you know, I love to champion new writers and writers maybe I've heard of uh, that I've been watching for several years but the world at large isn't as familiar with. Uh, like I said, I don't believe in the New York market you put very often a writer who's their first play. Uh, writing a play is a very, very difficult enterprise. It's an ex there are important rules to follow, uh, of, you know, ways you put your creative subconscious into a play and yet follow these rules. I think it takes some practice. And yet I like, I, you know, I try to track a writer's development and try to judge when they're ready for the sort of spotlight of Playwrights Horizons, which is, after all, a New York theater that the major reviewers come to. So, and the climate, I feel, is not uh, maybe as open to brand new writers as it once was. So you also have to do plays that you feel people will come see, too. So that's what you're, you're balancing when you're choosing seasons. Thank you. Hi, I'm Annette Salsgaard, and I came here from Sweden to pursue acting. And I was wondering, uh, how did the dream team come about? OJ's defense lawyer? <laughs> 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 the dream team? What do you mean? Who well, the, your partnership, I guess you mean, with Spielberg? And Oh, 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 yeah. oh, 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 the Dreamworks. Dreamworks? You mean Dreamworks? Oh, what's that? Okay. <laughs> Dreamworks. You mean how did Spielberg? Yeah. Yeah, how oh, did that come Oh, beats me. I just got a call. <laughs> oh, how did that, how did the, you mean how did the, we, the theater develop the relationship? Right. The, that, um, Don Scardino actually knew Steven Spielberg. And in fact, when Don began his first season at Playwrights Horizons, we were producing On the Bum, by Neil Bell that Don was directing. And in the new theater wing, our upstairs theater, we were doing a play by Jay Tarsus, who Don had worked with. And Jay was actually developing a TV show for Kate Capshaw, who's Spielberg's wife. So Don, uh, Stephen actually came to both of those productions and was very excited by it. And since he knew Don, they talked about the theater needing to develop relationships with the Hollywood industries in order to preserve the theater industry, to make it easier for writers. I mean, actors now subsidize their theater fix by all of their Hollywood work. We, it was our impression at that time that it's harder for writers because writers are valued less. They're, they're valued highly, but also... But it's also very different because what the New York theatrical community rewards is individuality and an idiosyncraticness of voice, which is uncertain qualities that the film, that the commercial film industry disdains, and they are exact mirror. They are looking for the exact opposite in the commercial film industry than they are looking for in the New York theater community and in the theater in general. And um, I, I think that's why most movies are hideous parades of garbage. But that would just be me, and I work for them now, and i filled with love. <laughs> but they are looking for exactly the opposite. But I think it was the experience that in Hollywood there were examples of smaller budget, writerly driven 
films that w were getting a lot of attention, and there were more and more people looking to theatrical writers as mm -hmm. potential sources of those scripts. Is and this was one way, the, the, there was a commissioning program and a, and a support system for Playwrights Horizons developed in that deal. I um, think it's a very, very good thing to have happened. And it's is in its third year. Now, is there a first refusal on movie rights? Yes. Or, that goes on. Very important. And can you just go around very quickly and say what you would like to have happen for Fit to be Tied? Is there any thoughts about going to Broadway? <laughs> We're going to Broadway. We're going to the All-Star Cafe. <laughs> Straight from this. Um, I don't know, Tim. <laughs> there are people so interested in moving. This because it's now, what, October 24th, and people are going to be seeing this in December, and, you know, what's going to happen may be apparent right. by that time. And we'll, know, we'll seem I'm, either prescient <laughs> or deluded right. by that point. You know, I'm, still, I'm still watching Susan Stroman talk about inventing a new language of dance for big every day <laughs> on these reruns, so I don't want to go on record. I will say well, there are, there I are have to interrupt you and, and just say whatever happens, it, it's a wonderfully invigorating and delightful play and and I just hope Fit to be Tied stays around a long time no matter where it is and I'll, certainly everybody should go see it and this is the American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre and it's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and this seminar is on the production all the people that made it possible for Nikki Silver this bright young playwrights play Fit to be Tied to be produced. Thank you so much for coming, and I'm delighted that we have these seminars.